right, here we go. This episode is uh, really happening. I haven't done anything quite like this one. Uh, it's not really a, a formal debate, so I won't call it one. This is a conversation about abortion with someone who could not be any further from me on this issue or on our underlying philosophies. My conversation partner here is a writer named Bethel McGrew. She uses an online pseudonym, which you might know, called Esther O'Reilly. She recently wrote about her decision to reveal herself as herself on her Substack, which you can find at estheroreilly.substack.com. Bethel, as I'll call her, also has a, a PhD in mathematics, and as you'll soon hear, is a devout Christian and very opposed to the practice of abortion in all cases. Also, you've probably seen the timestamp on this one. It's a long episode, but with a subject like this and a conversation that tries to get to the deep kind of philosophical grounding areas that we seek, uh, it takes some time. So I'll keep the intro short because I hope this conversation stands on its own. Uh, I've been very frustrated by the state of discourse on abortion for quite a while, and I insist that all of it should sound a little bit more like the one you're about to hear. Uh, I also have a closely related frustration with the lack of depth that the atheist conversation has displayed since its resurgence with the new atheist movement. Uh, I provide a closing statement at the end of this episode, which I, I know is a bit unfair since Bethel couldn't respond to that in real time. Call it a kind of home field advantage since this is my podcast. But anyway, if you've longed for the days when atheists would engage directly with religious philosophy, but found much of it far too shallow and psychologically uncharitable, uh, you might appreciate my closing remarks. So please um, stick through it all for that. Okay, so abortion. This is an issue I feel strongly about, uh, as does my conversation partner, Bethel. So I won't apologize for some passion that I spend here and in the closing remarks. And so without any more blathering from me, because you're about to get plenty of that, uh, I've never talked this much on my own podcast. Uh, here you go. Dilemma, season three, episode two, Bethel McGrew and myself, the abortion question. I don't think I've had a, a guest that probably is as far apart as you and I are philosophically, fundamentally, which is exciting in a way. Um, but re but really what I aim to do with it, as I told you, is um, have a, a conversation where, yeah, we'll defend our sides as best we can and get into it and sort of, you know, get into the issue of abortion. It's, it's, it's an issue. Um, but model what I hope is a much better engagement on this topic um and frankly any topic because i keep putting out there that we are so much less divided than everyone keeps telling us we are or that the media keeps telling us are we're telling ourselves we are and that if we could finally just somehow drag ourselves off of the noise of conversations and the like chatter on social media and the output of these slogans and get to sort of deeper philosophical places, we'll find a lot of overlap with each other. We'll, we'll certainly find differences still. You and I are going to find deep differences of how we ground the question of morality and God and really big things, and I'm excited to get there. But at that level, I feel like we could start to at least understand each other and lay the, the, the framework for meaningful engagement that, that might get somewhere. I don't know where, where it needs to get, but that's what I hope we can model in this 
non-debate conversation. Yeah, and, and it might also be fun for me to um, to maybe offer you a fresh way to think about mm -hmm. about grounding, and and maybe I can add a few pixels to, to your picture of yeah. of, um, of how I think about about grounding or whatever or natural law, totally. yeah. you know, all that all that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. so let's do this. Let's try to see if we can have a good entanglement about the fraught issue of abortion. And I, 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 I said, this isn't, this isn't a debate. It's not going to be sort of a formal debate, but I'm not going to be afraid to sort of speak my mind and you shouldn't be afraid to speak yours either. And I wanted to start by just giving you sort of, you know, three minutes, give me your, your, your position on abortion as best you can. And then we'll see where, where we can go from there deeper into it. Okay. So my position is fairly straightforward. Um, it is always wrong intentionally to take an innocent human life. Um, the unborn child is an innocent human life. Therefore, it is wrong to intentionally take the life of the unborn child. We make it into different thought experiments and things, things that you've written about, like, well, what about this? What about that? And I like to think I'm pretty consistent here um, and consistent maybe in ways that, unfortunately, I don't know that all of my fellow Christians, even necessarily all of my fellow pro-life Christians are consistent. I think that's unfortunate. I, I've, I've never felt um, inhibited about disagreeing with people on my side there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's really yeah. the argument. I, it's pretty clean. It's pretty straightforward. We'll, we'll get into this as well, but I don't know that we necessarily um, disagree on premise two, mm -hmm. that the, the unborn is a life. I've seen you write about this mm -hmm. and how it's a mistake to try to uh, contest that. So, but there you go. There's yeah. my my opening statement. Well, that's that's great as a, as a starting point. Yes, you're right. And I'll, I'll, I'll have to be repeating some of that, that essay, of course, throughout. Um, so yeah, I, I think as, as, as a sort of backing up general comment on the, the abortion conversation, especially in America, is that we do get hung up far too often on this question of, is it a life? Is it not a life? Is it killing a baby? Is it not killing a baby? I tend to think that that question is beside the point, really. And I find it scientifically interesting, but not all that morally salient or interesting. Of course, it's morally salient. Like you said, it's always wrong to take an innocent human life. But I, but I, but I think here, here's where I'll start sort of the pushback is, what I'm hearing from you and some some of your your writing on this topic, um, and and you're not alone in the pro-life movement, is that I, I have a feeling that you think phrases like baby killer or even conversations about eugenics um, or taking of an innocent human life is always wrong are statements that are doing more work than they actually are. They, they land to me as almost shrugs. And maybe that sounds a little harsh or cold because those are almost easy to say. I could say something is wrong and it's always wrong to take an innocent human life. But like you said, it's very easy to come up with thought experiments or, or any kind of complication where taking an innocent human life is not only permissible, but maybe even the only admirable thing to do in the essay. And I'll just give it here now, since it's such a clean, easy one is, you know, if you are a bomber hovering over, you know, a, a terrorist activity and you spot a, a car with a terrorist that you have every reason to believe is driving straight towards a wedding party with a hundred people in it and he's going to detonate his car and, and likely kill and injure lots of them. Um, and you have a bomb and it's unfortunately the only thing you have. We can't call on a sniper quite yet. We'll, we'll get to that sort of edit. You have a bomb um, and at the last moment you spot his, his daughter in the backseat 
when you have every reason to believe his five-year-old daughter is innocent, <laughs> of course she's five years old, um, do you drop the bomb? And of course, this is an awful, terrible situation to be in. And this is what a, a previous guest of mine, Lisa uh, Tessman, called a, a true dilemma, meaning that we have, we have a situation where there are two competing wrongs where you can't choose a universe that absolves you or gets you out of committing a sort of unthinkable wrong. And the book was called When Doing the Right Thing is Impossible. And I, and I loved it because it was a great pushback of some maybe really cold utilitarian philosophers who say like, well, just figure out which one, you know, does the least amount of harm and then you've solved the dilemma and you're out of it. There are no dilemmas. And I don't like that, especially psychologically. As a framework, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a good thing to hold up certain values as even in a secular sense, sacred. And what you said, taking an innocent human life, you can even call this a sacred act. But if, if somebody drops that bomb and, you know, kills the terrorist and presumably his daughter in the backseat and, and saves or prevents the killing of the, the 100 people at the wedding party, it's hard to view that as an act that's not um, permissible, although regrettable, and certainly will do some serious moral injury to the person who, who drops the bomb. But we, we not only allow it, we sometimes sort of, um, you know, uh, it's the only, it's, it's an admirable thing to do, or it's, or it's the only sort of, uh, only option, and, and we should comfort the person who makes the decision. Now, of course, that example is extreme. And it's my burden to say the situation of a pregnant woman for any number of reasons, which we're now going to, I'm sure, get into, and wants to terminate that pre pregnancy or take an innocent human life, I'll just use your words, is a, is a context that's somewhere on the spectrum that's extreme enough that I also can call it permissible, even though we can still agree that it's maybe a wrong um, or some sort of moral in infringement. Um, so that's sort of like my initial sort of pushback on the terms of the conversation around abortion. And, I, and I'm trying to drag the conversation away from the like, is this a life? Is this not a life? And more to the, what are the contexts of the decision to pull the trigger. I'm using now the Pope's analogy of calling it a hitman to, to get an abortion, which again, I didn't mind. It's like, does no work for me as someone who understands moral philosophy of like, sure, it's a hitman. So is the guy in my, in my military example. Um, but when do you hire a hitman to do this kind of work? Is it extreme enough? And of course you would say, no, not at all. And I would say, well, I think so. And then we'll get into it. So that's my initial sort of my maybe longer than three minute pushback. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll push back on your pushback yeah. now, I guess. Um, there's a few few levels of this here. So first of all, I disagree that um, the hypothetical drone pilot who chose not to drop a bomb would be doing something morally wrong. Hmm. Um, I don't actually think that it's certainly it's certainly a profound psychological dilemma. But I don't know that I agree that it's a, a true what well, I definitely don't agree. I'll be less tentative. I don't agree that it's a true moral dilemma. And I'll give it actually, I will give a sniper example. This comes from I assume you saw the the film American Sniper. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um so there there's a there's a scene there where the, the main character has a little child in his sights. The child has a rocket launcher mm. and there's a danger that uh, the kid might aim it. And so, you know, it's this awful moment of tension where you don't know what's gonna happen, but it's resolved because the child drops the weapon and runs away. But interestingly, if you read the book, American Sniper, that that movie was based on, where Chris Kyle talks about the moment, it actually was not an agonized back and forth for him 
in actuality at the moment. He said, when I saw the kid, I, I just decided right away, well, I'm not going to shoot a kid. Hmm. And that was it. Now, of course, it makes for a better a better movie to draw it out to show like the you know the conflict and the internal tension and it's very effectively done but i always thought that was interesting when i when i read that it was like oh like this was actually a pretty fast clean decision in his mind like nope well not going to do that and, and and if the child had gone on to kill his his friends i'm sure that it, it would have haunted him mm. but probably he would still have have felt have felt morally justified, even though psychologically it would be it would be a horrible thing to handle. Yeah, I don't think that it, it's a moral wrong. If some other now in that case it's just an innocent child. In the terrorist case, you have somebody evil who's actively um, trying to harm people. But I would say that the blame is like one hundred percent on the terrorist in that situation. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no there's no blame to the person who backs off from from killing an innocent human shield. You know. It's all on the Joker, the terrorist, the you know the chieftain in the woods, whoever whoever the the evil moral agent is in, in your ethics 101 scenario mm-hmm. here. You know that that's where the, the locus of the blame rests. That's like its own separate sort of thing there. But that kind of may show sort of where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. But then I don't think to move to to the, the attempt to analogize this to abortion, it doesn't even seem. I don't I don't think it would really succeed there either. Uh, I mean. I, and it's interesting to me that you talk about this sort of thing being religiously grounded because I've had conversations and read conversations with a lot of Catholics who have their own principle of double effect thing kind of worked out where they, they might actually agree with you uh, that it's okay to, to drop the bomb and mm-hmm. kill the terrorist and his daughter. And I would go at it with the Catholics and say, well, no, I disagree. We're both religious, okay? But we just have different philosophies here. Whereas I've seen a secular pro-life person say she is hardcore she wouldn't even allow an exception for the life of the mother so yeah that may that may kind of throw a little wrench in in the works here to the the attempt to analogize you know there's no except for the you know the ectopic pregnancy you know like the fraction of a percent cases where it's like literally like a stark this or that choice um but there is no bomb there are no crowds of people who are going to die or be blown up or whatever lives that you're trying to save where you're racked with guilt oh i could have saved these lives or whatever you know what might have been if i don't kill this child so i mean that right away i really seems to sink the attempt mm-hmm. to say that that the vast majority of abortions even fall into that to that category yeah so that would be the beginning of my yeah. pushback so let me because tra- i'm a little surprised let me try but not totally i was prepared for sort of a um split between sins of omission versus sins of com- commission it sounds yeah, active passive distinction you know right yeah. so like to draw that out we could we could use the old classic trolley problem and the bridge variation um, I'm imagining you, or I could lay that out here, the, the classic trolley. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I mean, should I do it just for, for listeners who might need a refresher? The classic trolley problem, I don't know how you answer it. You're on that. Yeah, yeah. and I do. I, I mean, I, I know I'm familiar with the different variants mm-hmm. on it. Um, I think, um, I yeah, I, I can remember taking an ethics class and mm-hmm. having the, you know, the, the college debates over it. Um, I do remember I heard once a variant where you're, you're actually driving the train. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're not just on, on the side pulling a switch. And um, as I thought through that and I, I bounced it off people, I think that might 
change mm. it because if you're actually behind the wheel, you're going to be behind the wheel no matter what. So I don't I I could see an argument for just like shifting which direction mm. the train is pointing as you drive it. Um, I I think there's a difference well, though if you're just let, off to let, the side. Yeah, let me try to switch this one because I actually I have to ask more questions about your position that are specific first. Do do you make any exceptions at all for for abortions like rape and incest or any of that? Like where where is your line if you have one? Um, I don't I don't make any exceptions at all. Although, uh, you know, I'm aware that there are even like really hard line pro-life people who will make like the one single exception if, if it's like a dire life of the mother mm-hmm. situation like ectopic pregnancy they will say okay that one thing i'll grant that it might be permissible to, to take the child's life and um i have a lot of compassion for people in that situation who who've gone through with that although i mean so often it's moot anyway because the child is just dead so i mean might as well throw that out there's a, a mm-hmm. medical side note also, like delivery could be distinct from like actively killing. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of nuances. I don't want to get into the weeds there, but I still, I still think it is, it is wrong. And, and I, just as analogously, I would say that in, in a number of situations with, with people outside the womb, you know, similar kinds of thought experiments. And I find especially odd the rape and incest exceptions. Mm-hmm. Like Dude. that makes uh, no logical sense to me whatsoever. I can at least see how somebody might second guess themselves or, or be tempted or, or go back and forth over a life of the mother thing because you have oh no well like the life versus life and death i mean i, I could i understand that a little better but the rape and incest never made any any sense to me at all really so it doesn't so you say it's wrong and again this is fine to say it's wrong but do you think it's a wrong to if a, if a woman gets raped by a family member let's call it a brutal rape a really awful one and a pregnancy mm-hmm. results from it um, and she's young, let's say 14 years old, and mm-hmm. this is going to be tough on her body, but, mm-hmm. you know, no risk to her as far as her life, but it's going to be tough and she's going to have to be out of school for for an amount of time and then recover. Do you think it it's wrong? It's a, a wrong has been done to her? Yes. Do you think a wrong has been done to her um, by a society not allowing her? Let's Let's say she finds out on day number two, right after conception, to end the pregnancy there and and keep her out of school and and cause her bodily sort of uh, transformations and the psychological damage that will come from raising or giving birth to a, a relative's uh, your rapist's baby. Is that is that a wrong? Is it still wrong? And again, we can have two competing wrongs here, and you can still choose one. But would you just call it a wrong? To to encourage her to go through with the delivery. Not not encourage. Let's do it in a negative way to disallow Why? to disallow the no what, no what? you you could encourage her you could encourage her all you want to to disallow the option to not to to end it to disallow the option to not is this a wrong that's been imposed upon her? No no I I think it's um a life saving thing uh, for for the baby right for the right well for the baby but to be to be honest not only for the baby I mean um. I want to be careful how I use this because obviously the, the morality of an action is not contingent on a person's psychological fallout from it. Hmm. But if we're going to talk about psychological fallout, it's entirely fair to bring abortion regret into this equation. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there are many, many, many women, including women who were raped, including very young women and girls who chose an abortion 
and then they carry that for the rest of their life mm -hmm. and and they have trauma and it, it it haunts them and they say i wish every day that i that i had not right. taken my own child's life so it's an act of love for both the child and the girl to preserve the, the life that's growing inside her mm -hmm. i would i would argue but is it possible that there's also cases <laughs> where they would regret giving birth to the the baby and carrying it to full term there, there, there could be women who struggle in that way. Yeah. And I, like I said, that that's why I was careful in how I framed it. But um, I don't want to say women experience abortion regret. Um, therefore, that makes it wrong right. because there, there are women who experience birth regret, you might say. Um, I, I, I merely put that out there if we're talking about, you know, what the damage to the mm. girl's psyche possibly and thinking about her best interests. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to do that, I'm trying to lay a, a groundwork that I want it to be clear that I think there's no escaping harm in any of the situations and there's no escaping potential harm. There's no clean answer. I guess I'm, I keep pushing back on the like saying, well, it's wrong. So I've answered the question is like, no, it's not. So I, I assume you think it's wrong to lie generally. Generally, although right. I. I don't know, maybe, maybe with age, I've, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Because of course. The Nazis at the door, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, Nazis at yeah, the yeah. door. Um, and you're hiding Jews under the, the floorboards. Do you lie or do you tell the truth? I mean, th these are these are classic sort of like ethics 101 questions, but they, um, they're they salient in a way of as sort of, um, you know, nightmarish it is, as it is to be in a situation where you need to commit a wrong um, in order to do what you think is a, is a noble less wrong or a, a noble good or whatever. I think these are the interesting dilemmas to be in as, as humans, which might move us closer to where, uh, like we're dancing around the grounding problem that you and I probably really dis disagree on because I keep wanting to inject the word sacred. It sounds like you're, you're putting out a position, correct me if I'm wrong. You would say it's a, it's a sort of sacred moral task to protect innocent life or maybe just all life I'm not quite sure on that on that level um, and that that sacredness is so strong and such a, a divine kind of, of morality that no matter putting it on a consequential scale while you could see of course that there's some people who might be influenced or swayed or, or like you said sort of weigh the options a bit there there's nothing that you could possibly put on the other side that's ever going to tip that scale because it is sacred because it is it is that heavy. Is that sort of a fair sort of like summation of this? It is fair. Um, although I make it, I always make a distinction, and we could get into this, but it's I think it's important to tease apart epistemology and ontology mm. here, um, because epistemologically, I think um, I've seen many times people who are completely secular who nonetheless have strong intuitions on this point. Yeah. Um, both with the abortion and with the end of life debate, you know, sort of the both ends. So I think it's entirely natural and, and possible and happens all the time that people have an intuition uh, of sanctity, you could say, yeah. while themselves not holding to uh, a religious framework. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, in, in part of my essay and in part of my work is, is um, trying to make the best secular case for what I think is really underlying and underpinning something like the abortion debate or, or, or many debates that seem to split now along these partisan sort of lines. So how do you 
define the sacred and what a real like sacred notion of morality is to to announce that something is so sacred in such a way that it cannot budge and it, and it um it takes priority over everything else that i could possibly throw at you i mean i met there was a hundred people at the wedding party with my terrorists i'm sure no matter how big i increase that number of the wedding your answer will be steadfast don't drop the bomb right well that's exactly right and i think that gets to um that gets to a really important uh, aspect here, which is that sanctity is not quantifiable. And, and I mean, this is why when, uh, you know, people talk about genocide texts in scripture or, or whatever, I, I'm always, it bugs me because I'm like, I don't really, the number of people killed is, is not really what I'm interested in. It's, it's, uh, it's if even one innocent person was killed, mm. then the, the value of a single life is infinite. And so, you know, infinity times infinity is just more infinity, right? Yeah, that to your point, that's that's one thing I would say. I think you're onto something there. Okay, I, I mean that that might ring harsh to some people, right? That that you would uh, you know not drop the bomb on even knowing that a billion people will die who are all presumably innocent in this case, but it's just that your hand did not commit the act. I'm, I'm trying to understand sort of what the yeah. The that, that's, there is. that that's it yeah yeah and and it's it's on the the blood is on the head of the evil person who's orchestrated this whole thing right it's right. not on my head and so now so i think like we're on sort of the religious question of the grounding of it because how do you how do you respond to people of being like well by those lights it seems like god's hand is on quite a lot of uh, of of deaths here and is it not our i mean to, to flip it and reverse it how do you justify intervening if if you know God has has set something in order that we find imperfect or less than a moral sort of you know optimal state? Ought we ever intervene in that situation? You're thinking about just any kind of intervention, like should we? Why perform surgeries? Why uh, why try right. to heal people? Why You're wearing like, glasses? Do... I presume this is like God's design just should have been better, right? Is this like an affront that we've decided to intervene and I'm wearing contacts to like fix my vision, right? You know. Well, um, there was this thing called the fall. The creation was good. Creation is fallen. Creation will be redeemed. This is the sort of um, the three the three act structure of history mm-hmm. as as Christians see it. I think it's clear throughout the Bible, that God has ordained the task of mankind to be the restoration and repair of a fallen creation until that time when time is no more, right? And so, but the, um, it, it is a, a God-appointed task to, to do what we can to, to prepare for, for the new creation. Mm. And that that involves tending the sick, it involves healing and, and doing what we can where we see darkness and death and sin and disease and all those things just because god has allowed these things to come to pass um it, it does not mean that he that he calls them good in the sense that god called creation good when he first created it and it was it was pure and sinless and unfallen um, so that's, I, I veered a little into theology no, there, that's but great. that's kind of how I would lay that out. Yeah. 
Okay, I think we're going to probably have to to get into the free will thing at some point. Maybe I should should table it for now because it's it's hard to to reconcile that. Um, but I'm I'm still trying to understand your picture of. Um, it's always helpful for me to ask these specific questions, but sure. doesn't seem to be helping me now. Of like like capital punishment or sorry to be unhelpful. <laughs> no, no, no. It's great, and and I and I I really really want to, and I think sometimes I can glean it. I can understand why abortion could be so abhorrent to some to to a different kind of philosophy. I could I could try to take your shoes and the empathetic view um and understand why you think like it's such a matter of fact. And I do think it's consistent, but I might be a little bit mistaken about where your consistencies lie because I want to ask about punishment. If someone murders someone, a genocidal person does this awful thing, do you support punishment for this person, death penalty, capital punishment would be the ultimate form. I could ask about that. I mean, where do you stand on, on, on that side of the issue? A lot of times people charge pro-lifers who tend to be uh, at least politically aligned with capital punishment. You know, Texas famously with this very restrictive abortion thing also puts a lot of people to death and they're like, this isn't consistent. And I claim, no, it's entirely consistent with my framework if it's all about sort of responsibility and, um, I think you put it as God's task to enforce kind of his law, which is to, to take care of the sick. And, and I'm sure in your view to not kill the unborn, but also to dish out his yeah. sort of and, and also, punishment. Right. And also to not kill the sick and, and to not kill the um, the elderly, in which you know there was a big debate in the UK where the House mm. of Lords um, debated this, this, this bill over assisted suicide. And so that was a fascinating thing to, to follow. Um, so... But yeah, um, I think we agree here because I, I, I am pro-capital punishment, and I think we both understand why that's that's consistent, consistent. within this frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, so I wanted to, if I could, and you, and you don't fall into this category. I think the the at least American polling data, best I could find recently, is between eleven and sixteen percent of of um, people oppose abortion in all cases, which I, which you would fall into. So it's a, it's a small minority, even of the pro-life movement. And this argument might be less salient for them. But if I could put this to the listener, whether, and you said, I don't think, I really think this doesn't fall as cleanly as we've been told on secular religious lines or on political lines. So let me just put this to the listener, no matter how you identify yourself. Um, And I laid this out in my article a little bit. If you imagine one woman who's, you know, young, flirtatious, maybe partying a little bit, um, you know, doesn't, isn't sort of like doing the right thing, scoffing off in society a little bit, sleeping around, gets pregnant. Maybe she's had a few abortions before and is like, yes, you know, I don't want it. I'm just going to get another abortion. How that case hits you sort of emotionally, no matter how you feel about it, uh, versus the case of what we talked about earlier, like a brutal rape of a family member. And even if you budge a tiny bit in sort of the compassion towards that person, which I think is natural, and I think we could talk about that. Even I do, as someone who's as pro-choice as you can get, I actually, you know, I, I respond differently to my own thought experiment there a tiny bit. And it reveals, I think what that reveals ultimately is that we have a concern, maybe it's not an ultimate concern um, in your framework, but we have a concern for absolving ourselves of the consequences and responsibility of our actions. And the woman who is raped brutally by a family member, we presume did nothing. She's not responsible at all. You were 
talking earlier about sort of the terrorists, it all falls on him. People would be very hard pressed to ladle any responsibility on that woman for her pregnancy. And therefore, whether you agree with abortion or not, or if you find our language about killing a baby, uh, you know, agreeable or not, you're you're more permissive of that one, or at least you have more compassion for that case versus the other one. I think that's a fairly common thing because we are, as an animal, very concerned with responsibility and fault and punishment. And hey, you know, you slept around, you spread your legs. And so no, like, I don't have compassion for you for just ending this uh, abortion or whatever. We respond a little bit differently. And if that's the case, and I know this, that was a straw man of, of your argument. I know that's not what you're saying. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a somewhat, you know, tugging on some strings people have. That view absolutely justifies if we're concerned about responsibility for our actions, of course, you would say, well, this person murdered someone and therefore they need to be held responsible and the, and the punishment for that crime is a death penalty and we're going to put them to death. Um, and so that's totally consistent. I don't think you're inconsistent at all. Maybe you go a little deeper than some who, who say that this, this isn't even your sort of definition of consequences. It's God's definition and you go deeper, which, which we could talk about. But I just want to lay that out there as a consistent moral position to take, one that I don't agree with, but a consistent one. And even, and then I'll let, let you go, I know I've been talking for a while, there's a secular defense for that. I too, as a liberal and uh, pro-choicer, uh, am generally concerned about a world and could even be convinced that a world where we've absolved ourselves of all of the consequences for our, you know, immoral actions or, you know, less than ideal behavior is not, it's not a great world and might be veering into, into a world that, that we don't want. Maybe that fallen world that, that Christians frame as this, this, you know, terrible kind of picture. Um, I think there, there's real weight to that and secular people as well have to consider these questions of what does it mean to have consequences and why do we need them and are they good or are they not? But all of that, I just want to frame is still about, it's not about the baby, really. It's about the woman and her behavior when we're talking about abortion. Um, and it's about the criminal and his behavior when we're talking about someone committing a crime. Anyway, I'll let you respond to that. What's interesting you should say that because um, there's a, a wonderful article by Douglas Murray from a few years back uh, called Would Human Life Be Sacred in an Atheist World? Hmm. Um, and it gets to what you were just saying there that this is something that everybody has to contend with. And Douglas opens it with a quote from Christopher Hitchens, that all the work still lies before you. Um, you know, getting rid of God or getting rid of religion, you don't get to say, great, well, that was easy. And now I get to go out of my way. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. This is where it begins, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Douglas, of course, a protege of Hitchens, um, takes that to heart, but then does, you know, new things with it. So I, yeah, that, that's a piece I would recommend everyone seek out if it's still housed at the spectator. Um, but to your point with the comparing and contrasting the two cases, um, I don't think that you're psychologically wrong when you talk about why it is that people, I will say, waffle on uh, the rape exception, because um, people don't think these things through very carefully. I think it's precisely the difference between greater compassion and greater permissiveness that needs to be teased out. Hmm. There's a difference between um, having more compassion for a, a woman who's a purely innocent victim who, who did no, absolutely nothing wrong 
who's been forced into, into this terribly difficult situation. Of course, we all have more compassion for that woman than we do for the woman who's just a hoe, right? Um, <laughs> that, but more compassion uh, should not, even if for some people it does, it should not translate into greater permissiveness as far as, well, does this change whether I think she should be allowed to kill the child? Does this change the wrongness of killing the child in my moral calculus? absolutely does not follow i think does not mm. and should not if it if they accept your um premise that it is a ultimately unmovable sacred value of this human life i would agree with you so i think we have to get into like well but and it's I, but, not yeah but the, the thing is though that i think a lot of again i think a lot of secular people uh would would also get my logic i mean i've seen mm-hmm. um i've seen secular jews i've seen complete atheists you know, there's a whole group called um, Secular Pro-Life, mm-hmm. okay, and, and they will make pretty much exactly the, the same case that I make, at, at least certainly for, for, you know, rape and incest or whatever, where they'll be like, well, I mean, we think that it's it's an innocent human wife, you shouldn't take an innocent human wife, and it's still innocent, the baby didn't do anything, mm-hmm. you know, so the, the baby shouldn't be punished for the rapist's crime, um, so if we're going to be consistent, then we're going to be consistent, yeah, so, yeah. so it, that... It, it's not just a, an argument Christians make. If, if it's, yeah, well, yeah, the word sacred, I, I hope people can hear as not just a religious one. I, I, I like, I, didn't, I haven't read that Murray article, but it sounds useful mm-hmm. um, yeah. because I, I do think we need a secular conception of sacredness that, and, and I would defend that. Well, but, his, and his, yeah. but his point is, I mean, I think his point in a way is kind of your point, although maybe he's a little more bothered by it than you are. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, like I, I can't speak to your, your state of mind. But Murray, at least, is really bothered by this idea of, oh, shit, can we yeah. even talk meaningfully about the sacred if we no longer have the vocabulary yeah. of, of Christendom? I mean, like we have the vocabulary, but do we have the foundation anymore? Are we just kind of adrift? Like, what does this even mean now? Crap, crap, crap. We just kind of have this intuition what do we do? Um, and he says, this is what drives people back to, to faith at the end. And it's, he, he paints this very vivid picture of, of where it's like you're on the edge of a cliff and you're sort of peering into this abyss of horrors and you're like, nope, 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 like, like mm-hmm. the meme, you know, and you turn around and you run back. Um, and he said it may drive us back to faith whether we like it or not, you know, so it's a, an effective way to end yeah. that. No, I, I think um, I think that's right. I'm probably less bothered by it. In my last one, I called, you know, my, my issue with Pascal was like, yeah, I'll go to step two. I'll be seeking an anguish for God. But I hope to. I want to do the alchemy to change that seeking and anguish to be the actual sort of like beautiful torment of life is to ask these questions eternally and be searching for it. But I, I totally agree that this is not easy work. Um, we don't need to do the whole Nietzsche quote here, but the end of the God is dead quote is the is the really good part of the quote because he challenges with that same thing. God is dead. We've killed him. But it goes on. The bumper sticker is that, but it goes on to be like, who are we? I'm not going to quote it exactly right here, but who are we to, can we come up with games that are sacred enough to announce ourselves? Basically, can we become the gods that we've now killed? And that is uh, uncomfortable. That's challenging work. We're absolutely screwing it up all the time, but we also have successes. I would call the glasses on your face and the contacts in my eyes minor successes. But this is, this is uh, I don't even think we're that far sidetracked on these foundational differences because to go back to the, the capital punishment and putting people to death, um, 
Where do you find the grounding to do such a thing? I'm imagining you're gonna, you, you'll put this in a, in a Christian context that we have a kind of free will upon birth that we can then forfeit our um, right to life and the executioner who pulls pulls the lever, you do not see as the same thing as the doc, doctor issuing uh, the abortion pills or or you know injection or, or surgery, because the life that they are taking in one case is innocent, and the other case has forfeited his innocence. So where do you ground that um, innocence and guilt and this notion of free will. I find it, I, I like using the word free will, even as someone who fully accepts determinism, but I find the trap of determinism to be inescapable to justify the religious uh, ultimate consequence of heaven and hell and and uh, death in this case, <laughs> a human doing God's work of pulling the, the execution lever. So, I mean, I'm not a determinist. Like that, that's, it's, it's right. all hope. It's, it's, yeah, a whole own um, debate, obviously. Well, I think it's irrelevant. I mean, can you explain how you're not then? Because it's hard for me to see and to lay this out for the audience. Determinism, as broadly as I can say, is we are all products. We didn't ask to be here in the first place. We're here. Um, and I didn't choose my environment that I was born into. And I didn't choose my, I didn't choose my nature and I didn't choose my nurture at any point. And every decision ultimately is a combination of the two. And even if you inject the notion of a religious cosmic soul that somehow escapes physicalism, well, God ladled my soul into me and I'm lucky I have the one I have because I don't have a genocidal tendency, but apparently Jeffrey Dahmer got ladled a bad soul because he did what he did. And so I'd, I'd never find a way to get out of the deterministic trap. This doesn't preclude me from talking about free will in a meaningful way, but I couch it much lower than sort of a cosmic divine kind of free will. Um, and I couch it in a biological phenomenon that we do have. We, we, it's, it's a human activity to build a society and build laws and build structure, but it, it, it can't because of that picture I just laid ever justify divine punishment. So that's how I see it. I don't know how to get out of that trap. Well, I mean, uh, you could say we all have bad souls, right? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm on the verge of launching into a Jordan Peterson impression here. It's like do it. Like, Someone else has done this on my show before. His was probably better than yours, but give it a go. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like your soul. You have you have an evil heart, okay? <laughs> and if you think if you think that you would have been any different from those prison guards, man, you have another thought coming. That's you better just it, it, be, be individual, like man. Anyway, yeah, that's good. It's pretty good. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, give yeah. it to me. Like, help, help me out. Not my best another work. way to yeah. see that. Yeah. So Jeffrey Dahmer just got a bad break, right? Is kind of the the pitch. Well, I, I right? mean, if it, here's another way to put that that I think is cleaner. If you exchange all of my quirks one for one with Jeffrey Dahmer right now, well, I don't even know where he is right now, but let's just say, let's say Jeff Dahmer yeah. in, the, in the 90s or whenever he was doing his thing. If you exchanged all of my quarks, one for one for one for one down to my brain, my physical self has been swapped with his, I would be him because I am a result of this physical, I'm an emergent property of a physical system. And even if you reject that picture saying, no, 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 there's a metaphysical soul that can't, yeah, be, tran but, right, yeah. that can't be transferred in such a way. Well, great, so you swap me with Jeffrey Dahmer physically but you're saying I would still be me because, like, I still have my eternal soul. Well, great. I didn't choose that 
either. And apparently Jeffrey got a, got a bum one then. And so he did what he did. And so we have to put him to death. Um, it seems hard. It seems hard to, I just can't figure out how to reconcile that piece of that, the deterministic puzzle. So going back to what I said, when it, it's, I said, in some sense, we all have bad souls. So, mm. so, um, you know, there, there's the, the Christian doctrine of original sin. There's also the Christian doctrine of original guilt, which I kind of want to tweeze away because I actually don't subscribe to that. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not an Augustinian in that sense, but, um, I do believe that we're we're all born with the the capacity and the tendency and the temptation to want to do evil things. And you know, Jay, I'm sure that you've never been tempted to uh, you know murder people and skin them alive and eat their brains or whatever. Bar- barely know me. <laughs> I barely know you. That's true. Uh, yeah. You could be an axe murderer. Yeah, I, I, have to, I have I to keep D- that in mind. Dahmer had him in his fridge anyway. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but I mean. You can think of many times in, in life when you haven't acted as you should. Hmm. Um, yeah, man. It's like, I, I really, I'm really channeling my inner Peterson. I made now. my bed this morning, Jordan. Don't worry. <laughs> Good for you, man. That's the first step. Um, so, so, but you can think of, of many times in, in life when you look back and you go, wow, that was not a shining moment. Um, hmm. You know, or, or maybe you almost did something wrong, but then you, you chose not to, you know, all of us have that, that capacity right? And maybe even the capacity to, to be pretty cruel. Um, if we really, if we really sort of peered into the darkest recesses of our own hearts. But I think we have, we're always provided with a way of escape. This, that's the, the scriptural way of putting it, uh, that we might be able to bear the temptation. So I think Jeffrey Dahmer had his way of escape um, at all times. Now, there can be physical things in the mix. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a morbid appetite for, for serial killer for true crime stuff, that kind of stuff. So I've, I've binged a little more of that stuff than is healthy maybe, but I, I have a kind of a weird fascination with, with the psychology of all yeah. that. And, um, you know, I don't deny that there can be physiological elements in the mix, like like this one, Dennis Nilsson, that was mm. the guy. Um, so he clearly had a lot of um, issues, let's let's say. You know, I mean, he was not, not mentally well, probably on the autism spectrum, had like all, all kinds of, of of problems. Um, and you could say that no doubt about, about many of these guys, but at the end of the day, you could just as well say, well, okay, but here's somebody who had all of those same physiological challenges, right. Who was a misfit in all the same ways who maybe had like a horrible abusive childhood, let's say Mm -hmm. like that's often in the background here. Okay. You could line somebody up almost like you were saying circumstance for circumstance, um, limitation for limitation, challenge for challenge, and yet they made something good and beautiful mm-hmm. out of their lives and devoted themselves to helping others instead of uh, murdering others, right. you know? So, um, and luck, I, I mean, l- I, lucky them, right? I mean, that would be our response, like lucky them for, well, no, yeah. no, no, not lucky. No, no, no. So like, I really am. I mean, I'm being funny here with Channeling Peterson, but this is where I think Peterson is really good. Um, and it, Peterson elaborates on this in his books and his lectures and stuff where he'll, he'll talk about it in his time as a psychologist, just the God awful lives that some people have lived who come to him in his clinical practice, but who have overcome somehow mm-hmm. in spite of everything who've overcome. And I wouldn't say, uh, I would not say those people are lucky. Um, I mean, I, I would say they got handed just as awful of a break in life 
as many as any of these people who chose to go and do horrible things. So it wasn't luck. It was character. I, I would say it's character that they had. But swapping out the word. And, and again, like I, I um, advocate for talking about a, a tangible and real notion of free will in a very Dan Dennett way that exists that falls way short of this magical religious version of it. Um, that that would save everything you said and everything that that Jordan said as well, couching it as you said in psychology, that um, it, it's a psychology is a biological phenomenon as well, not a divine one. And psychology, biology, society, these are things that that are downstream of this invisible black hole from which existence springs from, the eternal question of why is there something rather than nothing, which is, is the God question, um, which I prefer, maybe just temperament-wise, back to the, the, the Douglas thing, I prefer to leave as a question. I love it as a question. I, I shudder at an answer to it, because of course you could always ask, well, why that one? You'll never stop asking that question. Why that God? Why not the? Why not a different God? But but to to, to bring it back to this, um, and, and for for listeners who who were promised a conversation about abortion, I promise this is still one of them. And I think this is on, <laughs> and I think this is honestly how it should sound, because the reason that that I that I really thank you for following me down this theological and where where do we sort of like see the picture of the world together? Because you and I are pretty different in this way, obviously, um, is important because I. My position on something like abortion is far downstream of all of this other sort of deep philosophy stuff where I am trying to lay the groundwork that um, it's a it's a human discussion and it's a man-made kind of morality discussion. I'm very much a David Humean as much as I wish I, I, he was wrong. You can't get an ought from an is. And the oughts are up to us. And like Douglas said, this is really hard work. And I'm not even dismissing that religion and Christianity in particular, I talked about this in my last podcast, offers a lot of helpful frameworks, interesting metaphors. Jordan, of course, is very good at this kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think, I think the secular community and the atheist community has d uh, not served themselves well by snubbing their nose at all of it in this in this sort of walking away from it way. Um, so I don't want to do that here with you either. Um, but I can't ground it in there because I, what I heard from there, and this, I hope this, you don't take this the wrong way, I heard a lot of work to try to substitute the word character for soul because all I would respond is being like, well, unlucky Jeffrey Dahmer for having the wrong character for not being able to come his challenges, which he also didn't choose. Um, and ultimately, God is on the hook for that at some point, I presume, where to me the question becomes sort of uninter uninteresting. And of course, I started I started this with a with an analogy where I killed someone, <laughs> I killed the terrorist, right? So like I'm 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 not shunning this notion of like yeah you got to pull the trigger sometimes, and it's insanely regrettable. So by my lights, certainly the girl in the back seat, certainly the baby by your lights are innocent, and I wouldn't refute that, and I don't think anybody would. But I would also say, in some divine sense, the the uh, terrorist in the front seat is 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 innocent. He's not cosmically guilty. He's certainly guilty by the morality that we've uh, built and constructed, and I think rightfully so in our society. But um, I don't think he's going to hell. I don't think that concept holds any water, and I don't think the girl's going to heaven. I just don't think those hold any water. They're almost uninteresting questions that are outside of our capacity. But this, of course, I've opened up a Pandora's box now of, of Nietzsche's question, of Douglas's fear, of maybe your fear that like 
who am I to say that I get to define the morality here? Who are we to become gods and do this kind of thing? Who are we to make air conditioning where God wanted it to be hot or give me contact lenses when he wanted my eyes to be blurry? Who are we to do this kind of thing? And I flip it on the other way in a more sort of atheistic human forward way that, no, this is this is our, our if God exists, he gave us the capacity to um, be a special kind of animal that can ponder these kinds of things and and intervene in his creation, if if there is such a thing, um, as best we can. And I'm, I'm not sure how you respond to all of that, but I but I still think it, this gets me back to the abortion question as a, as an almost very small question in a much bigger, deeper philosophy of um, can and should we be try to. Um, become gods because, you know, you're looking at me saying like, you know, who are you to declare this kind of morality and, and say it's not sacred and then kill the baby because I decide that it's extreme enough that there's a life inside of of another human life and she doesn't want to have it anymore. That's an extreme enough situation that is somewhere on the spectrum that I analogize to being, um, you know, permissible to, to end that, that, that life, you might think that's totally crazy and my morality is way off. But I look at yours and I'm like, well, you're getting it from this incoherent picture of God. So how is yours any better? How are we not just in a classic pissing match of like, my God is bigger than your God right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's upsets. This goes back to, um, <clears throat> oh, what's the, what's the David, the David Foster Wallace quote, everybody worships something, right? Mm, something um, like that. Something like that. So I, I would say you have you have your own sacred value, Jay. Mm-hmm. Your sacred value seems to be autonomy, at, at least at, at least here in this case. So the extreme is so. So what you just said, she doesn't want that. That seems to be the key phrase. She doesn't want to have it anymore. So that's in your hierarchy. Mm-hmm. At the top of your hierarchy is um, is this this woman's desire. To, to have or not to have, and that that is what governs in the end, okay? And so you could say this, the sacred is that which ultimately governs. And you have yours and I have mine, so you're really not so different, you and I. No, and so, exactly. so, you know, um, but I don't know that you can get away from this, uh, from the notion of, of sacred, and you may sort of shy from that specific descriptor. You could substitute something else for it, something that, that didn't have like, a religious smell about it if you wanted to. Um, okay, but so top of the hierarchy, whatever you prefer. Yeah. Um, you have that too, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I think we, we, we I, both do. I, we're certainly ordering things differently, a priority. I think what what's interesting about the abortion question, of course, is I love the law and I dork out on the Supreme Court and I read all their opinions because I just like that. Law is tricky. Sure. Yes, total total nerd. There's amazing cases, not just about abortion that they're hearing right now. They, we, you should know, the Supreme Court does more than just guns, abortion, and God. Although they're doing a lot of it lately, um, but they're all really fascinating to read. I encourage anyone who's interested in this question to go seek out an opinion and read it. It's probably better than the media is reporting it, to be honest. And it's not as extreme as they're reporting it on either side of the fence. Usually, um, in fact, the Mississippi law that they're going to be debating December first um, draws the line at 15 weeks in Mississippi. I bet most people didn't know it's already illegal to get an abortion in Mississippi after 20 weeks. And this 15 week, this extra five weeks they're trying to add on to it if they get that law passed would affect 0.07% 
sorry, 0.7% of the abortions done in Mississippi were after the 15-week mark last year. There's 22 of them anyway, or in 2018. So anyway, read the opinions that are wonderful. But the point is, law is tricky. You and I are having these, like, I'm trying to draw a spectrum of like, well, it's a gradient and you and I are going to draw the lines differently somewhere, which which is probably true. And But it's okay even when we draw lines to admit that we have sort of different instincts or different sort of responses to different notions on that line. But law doesn't work that way. Law has to draw these lines and why it's why, why we always fight. Law has to draw a line. And so we're going to fight about the lines and that's okay. So when you say autonomy, like just to clear that up, that might be my highest value. I don't even have a better word for it right now. I don't know. And I, and I think in an earlier sort of exchange we had, I don't think it's it's wrong to encourage a girl to to carry the baby to term and to try to convince her morally of what you think sort of the right thing to do here is, or even in a religious context, what your God thinks is the right thing to do, whatever it is. I don't think that's wrong. Um, I would also just want to to keep and retain the ability for her to reject that view and to choose a different one. And that's really it. I mean, the pro, pro-choice is not a great term for it for a lot of reasons, because I think it is a bit too flippant about these bigger questions about is it really killing a baby? I, I think it rubs everyone the wrong way on both sides of the issue. It's just become so heightened. Um, but, you know, that's where I come down. If I don't think it's wrong for you to advocate every every weekend, I go and I drive by a, a, a Planned Parenthood because I'm on the way to getting bagels. I don't, I don't go to it every weekend. Um, and there's a group outside here in North Carolina that protests every week with their signs and they have their signs and they've got like bloody fetuses and they've got all these will adopt your baby signs and all kinds of things. And then there's two volunteers that stand at, at the door that usher cars in. They're allowed to be there up to like a certain line, another one of our legal lines to like run up to the cars and do what they're going to do, but then they can't go onto the property. I think that's fine. I, like, I don't agree with their position, but I'm not saying that should be banned. I'm just saying, yes, we should all advocate for our moral sort of positions in, in this world, but it's too simplistic to say, because we've decided something is wrong, therefore it should be illegal. Well, of course not. It's, it's killing a baby is very different than murdering a baby. Another boring and nerdy legal line is killing versus murder are entirely different things, right? Would you, in my, in my view, and I, I guess you, you disagreed with it a little bit, but the terrorist that I hired this military hitman to drop the bomb on certainly killed that terrorist, but did he murder him? Murder is a legal term that has a bunch of criteria that go into it. Um, no, he clearly didn't murder him. He killed him. And so, murdering a baby versus killing a baby. And I know it sounds so crass, and this is why, to be honest, I think the pro-choice movement is in rhetoric trouble because it's, I know how I sound saying that or how it hits some people's ears, um, but they're entirely different, entirely different things, entirely different things. So I just want, like the, the legal lines are, are where we end up fighting at the end, but if we can admit there's a, that there's a spectrum that we are drawing lines on, then I think we've started the conversation. But it's hard for me to find an inroad with someone who says, I didn't draw the lines, God drew the lines. Because it just feels like that's impenetrable for me to, to discuss. Because then I get dragged back, as we just did, into this libertarian free will question, which um, I feel unsatisfied by your answer still. I mean, I would assume that a girl in ex- exactly the situation that, that you've outlined um, if if she had a baby who was a day old instead of um, eight months old hmm. and unborn, 
I assume that your moral calculus would shift, right? Mine is a little a little bit, but probably not as much. And you, you might be horrified. I still just hold the line. If it's inside your body, it's your, you know, that's an extreme enough situation for me. But yes, I won't deny that my instinct and my sort of moral, um, you know, leanings, of course, shift a little bit, being like, oh, I'm a little, little more uncomfortable with that one. But if I was a judge, that's where I would draw the legal line is, is if it's in your body, it's still your go to. And while you may be in the minority of outlawed in every case, it's like 11 to 16 percent. I'm probably in the minority the other way of like legal in every case, although much smaller or much bigger minority that, that falls into that, at least in America at the moment. But yeah. Right. But but so, yeah. But my point is that you would no longer I mean, would you so you would no longer have this feeling like because, OK, we could say the specific um trauma to a woman's body of carrying a pregnancy, you know, like mm. that kind of thing would be in the past once she's delivered the child. But all of the, you know, the future, the economic burdens, the social burdens, on and on and on, all of that very much would still apply. And so would you still say that it's like an imposition or, or a wrong done to, to the girl to say, no, you can't smother this child with a pillow or, or drown it in a bathtub? Like, would you, like all of that very strong uh, language yeah. that you were bringing before, would you, would you still, I mean, would you balk there? Yeah. Yeah. Once it's out, out of the womb, <laughs> into the, into the world, then I think you start the clock of legal rights. Yeah. So then I would say, of course, yeah, then that would be murder. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making it up there, but I'm admitting that I'm making it up of like, that's where I, they're not easy. I don't, I don't, I don't think these judges' decisions are easy, but I would draw the line at, at yeah, mo moment of birth. Um, the eugenics cases are are hard once it's born. The spinal, I can never pronounce it, spina diffida. Spina bifida. Yeah, is, is a, you know, is a challenging one. This is a condition where the babies are born in just like terrible pain and usually only live a few months and then they die. And this is this is a go-to for people often trying to defend the compassionate ending of, of the life after birth. Um, you know, I, I'm probably okay with that. Um, it's regrettable. To, totally to be in that situation. J just to back up on all of this, because I think it's relevant. When I did the, the terrorist and the bomb thing, like I said, no sniper there. Of course, you could be like, we could just get a sniper and shoot that guy, right? Like you could get out of this dilemma. And the answer is like, yes. And we should always be trying to get out of this dilemma. So even if you see, and this is why I'm totally fine with um, pro-lifers advocating for every possible way to avoid being in the dilemma, if, if you accept some of my premises, of avoid being in the dilemma of an abortion decision in the first place, which is, you know, it used to be abstinence or contraception and stuff, which, you know, the, the horror show of the Catholic Church opposing contraception, I think, was always very like, dude, you're, we're trying to get you out of the dilemma of the abortion in the first place. They've, of course, since softened on that one. Um, but that stuff, I think, all makes total, is consistent with, with, my view of, ha of that we ought to be trying to avoid terrorists with girls in the backseat in the first place, right? Like we would, if that happened, we would be like, let's launch an investigation. How did it come to this? How did we not know? What warnings? And those are all great. Being like, can we invent technology to try to like, not even, you know, in an ideal world, not even kill the terrorists, just like put a magic freeze bubble around the whole thing and then go arrest him. Like whatever we could possibly do to get out of the dilemma of taking an innocent human life, I am all for um, and so, and that applies even now to this abortion case. And I know like you probably are having trouble seeing like how that lays over, but I, but I still think it's consistent. Certainly I am, I am weighing the woman and her 
autonomy, I guess is the word, autonomy over what happens inside her body um, much higher than you um, and, and to the point of, of ending the human life that, that it... Um, so it seems like you're, you're yeah. yeah so it seems you're really you're you're pretty much resting everything on the the inside her body that it seems like that's really doing all of the work because legally yeah for me because legally. the moment that like and it could be a difference of seconds mm-hmm. right you know it's so like this is at this nothing has changed about the status of the child mm-hmm. right i mean except its location right but it it's just that like oh well okay now everything that I was just saying before is, is voided because. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and I know that sounds illogical, but that's how the law actually works. I mean, if, if Mississippi gets this abortion ban passed at 15 weeks, the 14 week, 29 day midnight baby, that's that you're going to, you're going to end the life of, did anything really change in the next, next second, <laughs> you know, I guess one second later, but that's the same as, yeah. I mean, legal lines at some point are arbitrary. You know, we talk about legal legal age for consent to sex. Did anything magical happen on your birthday, on the 18th birthday, where you suddenly can, you know, have sex versus the night before? Um, no, but le- legally, I think to build a society, we draw these lines and we fudge them a little bit too. So, and, and I think we allow for some sort of human wink-wink fudging. If I drive 56 miles per hour on the highway, am I going to get a ticket? I could. I mean, legally, I'm over the line, but will a cop fudge it for me maybe and we allow some of that leeway so i think there's also some moral leeway there and clearly there is in the polling data like i said most and and this this also the pro-life movement talks a lot about that ninth nine month or eight month abortion and late abortion they're incredibly incredibly rare i could pull up the numbers here but it's like less than half a percent are done in that situation um and oftentimes it it falls into that life of the mother situation because if you're keeping a baby that long you're likely intending to keep it. And you certainly knew you were pregnant at that point. So the circumstances for those abortions are usually uh, more regrettable and more um, fall into that small category. But it, but it's a fair question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bite the bullet and say, yeah, like that's the line I would draw. Um, it, just well, because I'm admitting it's man-made, I feel better about that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me because it's interesting that you circle back to the law because – because law evolves, does it not? Law, mm. law evolves, law shifts. You know, I could I could say things about slavery. You know, we, we could we could go there. We could say all the things. Um, you know, under the law of Germany at a particular moment in time in the middle of the 20th century. You know, so I don't see how that's helpful as a moral yardstick. You know what I mean? Well, I'm certainly not going the. I'm not drawing the morality from the law. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, legality does not imply morality. And right, I, right, right. Yeah. And I do think our our legal structures should match our morality to a certain degree. But um, well, so, I'm, so then, I'm a pluralist, I, so yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I guess my point though is that if we're discussing, if the really interesting question is what should the law be, sure. Then we the snake can't eat its own tail here, you know. Right. Well, we're going to disagree. I mean, if you were the judge and I were the judge, certainly we would draw the lines in different places, and I think that's okay. But I, 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 I what I want, and it, I have no illusions that we're going to convince each other of anything at the end of this conversation. No, no, of course not. Yeah. And, and I think we're doing pretty well, knock on wood, whatever, whatever point we're at. But I really want it to be about understanding each other's positions, um, because I'm sure there's things that have come out of my mouth that 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 you find like 
abhorrent that I could sort of put things that way. Um, oh, well, but, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I've read, so. I've read Peter Singer. I, you know, I'm used to this sort right, of thing. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm also a vegan. It's interesting that the pro-life movement is the pro, is very, very few vegans and a lot of capital punishment. And, and, I'm, and I'm the pro-choicer and I'm the vegan who's against capital punishment. Just, just, but it's all consistent. And I'm there. If, if God, if we're, we're enacting God's sort of morality of, of, um, uh, consequences for our actions, then, then we're all there. But yes, P- Peter Singer uh, famously steps on a lot of landmines when it comes to eugenics and comes to things like that. Yeah. Which I, which I could too, if you want. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there was a big picture thing. So, so going all the way back to Hume and mm. the, um, the is ought distinction. So we could say is ought fat value. Um, I, I suppose I would say for, for my part, when I, when I think about the broader structure in which this is all nested for me, I, I would say there are certain values which are also fats. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a PhD in math, and, and so I often like to jump to, to mathematics here and, and to numbers and, and say, well, uh, you know, a number is not a, a physical thing, right? Uh, you know, we, we instantiate numbers in the physical world, we apply numbers, but the numbers themselves and the theorems or whatever are things we discover as mathematicians. And it seems to me that moral precepts fall in a similar category. Um, so they may not be material facts, but they are facts nonetheless. That is, is a, a bit of where I'm coming from there. Yeah, I think that's good and, and helpful. Um, I think math is, is mostly discovered, but we can we could we could sort of push push that off to the side. Uh, although it's probably it was just an analogy, no, you know, just kind of a, a categorical it, analogy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good one. Um, so the values, though, that are, are facts, um, I'm still struggling to reconcile how you contend with someone who doesn't share those values they just have the wrong facts and be and need to be exposed to these facts and then from whence do these values arrive or come from is it is it just god implanted them and they're there for us to either follow or not by some i'm still dissatisfied but invention of a magical kind of free will to to choose them um is that is that I'm, I'm trying to be i'm trying to be fair to that picture but it's very hard for me to still get to the point of um responsibility for having or agreeing with these facts i i, I clearly don't agree with that value right so am i out of step with god at this point am well, i well, yes. going I mean... <laughs> right so so, wait, so where does that come from i mean do you think i'm going to hell because of this well um I, th- I think, I think that we I think we deserve punishment for sin unless we unless we recognize our sin and repent and mm-hmm. seek a, a relationship with with God through His Son. And so, um, you know, yes, I, I Jay, I, I think you should you should repent and be saved and, and all that um, mm-hmm. good Christian stuff. Um, so, I mean, as to the question of like, am I going to hell for this? That's, I mean, that's a whole sort of a, a theological conversation. Like, what exactly is it that that damns us to hell? I mean, I would say it's sort of the the sum total of uh, um, of rejecting God's will or, or rejecting Christ. You know, mm-hmm. each thing that we that we do, each act we commit, or, or or thought that we think that's that's in 
in rebellion there sort of sort of adds up to uh, to form us. And then, but I, I think I'm not a Calvinist in that mm. sense. So we were talking when we were talking about free will and, and um, determinism. Um, I have an issue with theological frameworks that uh, that cash out deterministically because I, I feel like we are responsible. I feel like we do get to to choose the gift. And this may also relate to when, when you keep saying, well, God wouldn't want or God does want. Well, okay, if God made this, if God made me nearsighted, God must want me to be nearsighted, you know. Um, so theologically, of course, there's this battle royale over, well, but God's God wills that certain people should be saved and he wills that other people should not be saved. No, God wills that all people should be saved and goes back and forth. And, and people will ask, well, but if God wants you to be saved, then isn't it going to happen? Like, how could you freely resist the will of a, a, a divinely sovereign God? And, um, you know, I, I like to analogize it to, to, to a, a suitor, you know, um, a, a, a gentleman suitor won't press himself onto the woman that he loves. If she chooses to reject him, he, he allows her to go. And so I, I see God in the same way. But I think that we, I think we, we choose that. And I think in, it's, it's a contradiction for God to, for God to force himself um, onto our, our choice in that sense, even though I would say, well, of course, God would wish, he would will that we would all be saved, but that doesn't mean that he's, he's going to, to bring it about against against our free will, because that's mm. something that he's given to us. I kind of rambled there, but- well, I know, this... but I have a question about the suitor. <laughs> because oh, okay, okay. if I reject the suitor, who I'm sure is very attractive, and then she like burns down my house and sends me to hell <laughs> because I rejected her, isn't this the strange picture that I'm like, I'm, I'm resisting of this version of this uh, description of God? Well, I think what you just gave there is, is also, um, is, is, is also a misleading picture of, of hell, because I don't know if you're familiar with um, C.S. Lewis's work, The Great Divorce. No. Um, I highly recommend that because, um, and that was a very big influence on, on me growing up and, and gives, I think, a more accurate picture of, of what hell actually is. Because I, I think, I think at the end, the greatest hell is for me to be left alone with myself forever. Hmm. Um, and, that's a state that I choose. Um, so I, I think this idea of you know, like God picking me up bodily and throwing me into uh, a burning pit with demons, poking me with pitchforks or whatnot, I don't know that that's a helpful or accurate picture um, of what it actually means to quote, go to hell, unquote. Mm. That's a whole conversation in itself. I'm yeah. like on the edge of a, a rabbit trail there. That, I mean, yeah, that's kind of, that, that's where I would I would sit there. So it's it's not it's not the suitor actively burning her house down. It's is that he just sort of lets her wander off mm -hmm. in, Let, in her own way. Can I then okay, can I ask about um does in your conception of God and these divinely grounded moral precepts, which clearly the anything I could put on the other side of the woman or abortion or the context of the pregnancy isn't going to, to sway that. And that's that's really fine. But does God ever just to get this picture right, does God ever pit 
two of his does he ever put us in a position where we where we, we are forced into a genuine dilemma the way that Lisa no. Tessman was okay so that's hard for me to reconcile because then what fun is life <laughs> and what projects do we actually have to do is it, you're saying there are no dilemmas there are there is always a right answer we just have to understand God to get it and so it, it, I just want, in this practice of trying to understand where we come from, you understand how that, I mean, again, I'm sure I've said things that you find just like very like strange and abhorrent. I find it strange to not give you a hypothetical of a terrorist driving in to blow up a beautiful wedding party of these lovely people um, and me being forced to, to decide between agreed to sacred, unmovable, moral things of taking innocent life um, even one is infinity. So I, your infinity question didn't help me. Infinity times infinity is, is, is you know, an irrational. Well, we could get into a math question. I know you have a PhD in it. But, but, it, but that doesn't, doesn't, I don't escape the dilemma just by, by shrugging and being like, well, there is no right answer. It's like, again, with the legal thing, and in my opinion, the philosophically courageous thing is to step into those shoes, make a decision, and attempt to uh, not post hoc defend it, but move confidently in the anguish of the human condition, which is being in the anguish of always wondering what is the right thing to do, what ought we have done. Um, it, it's not hard to imagine a different conception of God that would be like, no, like you let a hundred people die. I'm sorry, <laughs> like you you made the wrong choice. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't, I feel like that's abdicating our genuinely beautiful, and I'm going to say sacred now, sacred ability to ponder these things um, and be anguished. And I'm, a, I'm convinced by Lisa Tessman that there are situations where doing the right thing is impossible, but we still have to do something. She brought up the Hurricane Katrina example. She wrote a wonderful book, and her first example was about the triage situation in Hurricane Katrina, where you're literally in a lifeboat situation in a hospital and the power's going out, and who do you save, and how do you decide these things? Um, terrible I make a distinction there. Yeah, go ahead. I, I make a distinction. I, I don't think triage is in the same category, um, because because all of all of the actions that you're that you're trying to take are are with the intent of of saving life. Like, it, I mean, triage doesn't involve actively, you know, pulling out a gun and shooting somebody. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's just a matter of difficult but, choices of priority, you know. But, but just like, to, to put something there, um, the case was actually about um, like in, injecting people uh, to end their life sooner because the well, option, it was. Right, because the option was uh, they would literally starve to death in, an, in a hospital with no power and drown potentially for days. Um, she faced prosecution. She was found innocent. Um, and she saved lives in the process as well. But yes, no, it, it was, I mean, it, it Interesting, is a, okay. It, it, and, and and just before you go on with that, it's hard. You said something about like not actively saving a life um, or, or actively taking a life. I forget exactly how you put it. It's hard, again, with the terror situation for me not to describe the action of the, the bomber as actively saving lives while, of course, taking lives. One innocent, one guilty by human nature. Yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, it's it, it's mixed, right? It's, it, it's, it's both and. Um, if I could make it, if I could speak to a different part of what you were saying just there, when you were talking about um, being willing to enter into the anguish of the human condition, mm. under, understanding how this this sort of thing could be agonizing, um, 
once again, I, um, I, I am with you there. Like I, I'm not, um, that drone pilot is going to be agonized no matter what, yeah. like what, whatever he chooses to do or not to do in that situation, he, you know, he's, he's going to have nightmares for the rest of his life. Yeah. And so, you know, we can have compassion for, for the drone pilot, no matter what he chooses, I would have compassion, whichever way he chose. Um, but that, I mean, that has to be, that has to be distinguished and, you know, great literature has been written about this one book I would highly uh, recommend is uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, um, hmm. which I, I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's, it's an excellent, excellent um, dystopian Catholic novel by a, a, a guy who was a, a very kind of a tortured soul in his own way. He ultimately took his own life, sadly. But it's a, it, it, at the end, there's, a, there's been a nuclear fallout, and um, a priest is faced with a, a woman and her child who've been poisoned by radiation. And the woman wants to take the baby to a clinic uh, where they'll be euthanized. And the priest is pleading with her to please don't do this to yourself or to your child. And it's this, it's an agonizing scene to, you know, to use your word. It's, um, it's very powerfully written and she ultimately chooses to, to go to the clinic. But, um, you know, you, you can portray something like that powerfully, literarily in a very non-glib way um, to show the starkness, you know, the, of what's at stake. And yet still underneath it all have a conviction about yeah. what the right choice is ultimately yeah yeah i don't i don't disagree with um with anything you just said i'm curious about um and, and i know i've been harping a lot on the terrorist thing and it is unfair because that that's like a very extreme context where i'm sure plenty of pro-lifers are like yeah i would totally do that one but the abortion one like that's nowhere close to extreme enough my admittedly to someone hearing that low, very low bar of like, the woman just doesn't want it. That's not enough. Like that's not extreme enough. Fine. We're going to disagree on sort of like where that line is. Um, but I'm still trying to understand the role of God's sacredness, which is um, heavy enough for, for you to, to simplify the discussion from the beginning in that opening. Um, does, does it extend to the point of ending or not even not even ending pregnancies i assume you're against all abortions so if there's a child with a disability and you find that out on day two of the pregnancy with some future technology whatever it is you would be opposed to ending that one i'm, I'm quite right. sure for the same right um does it extend to the sort of ivf thing of like i have five fertilized eggs in front of me i'm going to implant one of them to be you know implanted in a woman and then be carried to full term and i've done i've done studies and one of the five is has this like awful disability does it extend to that point am i am, am i going too far to play god that i choose not to bring that one into existence and i choose one of the quote-unquote healthy normal sort of uh you know eggs to implant in the woman does it extend that far am i playing god too much there uh well yeah i actually am opposed to to ivf um because it precisely because of the um, the extra embryos that are created thereby, and how you know these choices, because obviously you always make more than you're actually going to implant, right? Than you're actually going to use, yeah. and so you know, just as you're saying, these kinds of scenarios come up all the time, and um, and so um, yeah, I, I am opposed to that. In fact, 
if I could, I mean, to play like a weird future game, if I could just make one, if I could solve that problem for you, I had some future technology where I just made one. Um, is that is that too much? Like implanting a pregnancy without sex um, that just I just make it in a lab and I and I intentionally choose not to to include disabilities or something like that. So, you're ta- OK, so you're just talking about gene editing. Yeah, yeah, gene editing basically. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to find like the line of of where God's work begins versus where ours ends, and vice versa in this, or or where, where that sacred kind of um, variable triggers for you. Yeah, the difficulty is, you know, in, in all of these gene editing conversations. Of course, there was a Chinese scientist who got into hot water um, not all that long ago. I don't know if you followed the case. I forget his name. He was trying to edit a couple of twins so that they wouldn't be vulnerable to HIV. The experiment failed on its own terms. Anyway, it was, it was quite interesting. Um, and, and then what actually happened was that there was, so, so it failed for one of the twins, but not for the other. They, they decided to implant both of them. And so there was a conference where this Chinese scientist was speaking and a colleague of his raised his hand. and was like, why, why would you have chosen to implant the one where it didn't work? Which um, is sort of interesting that, it, that, that the question was posed out loud like that, uh, but it, it sort of goes to your point. And it's why, I mean, I would say these kinds of experiments never take place in a vacuum, okay? I mean, there's, there's always, there's never going to be a perfect hermetically sealed ethics 101 thought experiment scenario where it's like, okay, but what if it's like I just made one, no extras, and I made like a perfect little tweak mm-hmm. and the child was implanted and nobody died and there, there weren't any ethical corners cut and there weren't any mad scientists waiting in the wings to abuse yeah. this and you know like um that's not real life of course okay yeah, yeah. that's a that's a philosophy thought experiment so, i mean it gets slightly disjointed perhaps but that's kind of my, no, my thoughts it, on that yeah that's totally fair the trolley problem never it comes up on the tracks <laughs> it's always something very very right rarely. i mean I let's be never, real <laughs> yes, yeah. yes and no one reacts the way that they say they will in the in the, in the lab um but the, the ivf thing is sort of interesting because because i'm still the your highest value well as god and, and and god's sort of picture of things but your highest value of like the sacredness of life and innocent life um this this is not so if i if i make it in a lab though this is also sacred for you as well it's not sex like once i do this magic trick of putting this piece of dna next to this thing and then they do their magical thing the miracle has happened and i and my hands are are off and i have to respect that miracle and i and i'm guessing it's also just human right there's no i'm assuming you're not vegan but but there's no extension of this this um, mer- magical uh, sacredness to the animal kingdom or non-human animals. Right. Well, I mean, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a human exceptionalist. So, I mean, I, I would say, right. I mean, just as you could make a pig embryo in a lab, you could make a cow embryo in a lab, whatever, you can make a human embryo in a lab. And so there's, um, you know, there's it's nothing about now with the technology we have, sex is, is not necessary mm-hmm. for that. So however you made it, it's here now. Um, and if, if, like me, you're a human exceptionalist, then, then that, that is now a life that, that shouldn't be taken. So, yeah, that, that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. And, the, and is there any value to non, uh, non-human animal life in your conception of things? I'm not all that familiar with the Christian sort of like view on it, to be honest, other than probably some farcical 
vision in my mind of the Garden of Eden, and they were there well, for, for our in- entertainment and dinner, presumably. <laughs> well, I'm 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 not so hot on beagle torture. I gotta say. Um, right. uh, <laughs> why not? Why why not? Um, well, I, I'm against I'm against torture actually um, across across the board. But but so I mean I would say that I would say animals should be should should not be put through undue suffering or torture or pain. Um, but I do believe, for instance, that it could be permissible to euthanize an animal, whereas it shouldn't be permissible to euthanize a human. So you, you put the dog down, you put, you make him comfortable, you know, you make sure that it's, it's as painless as possible and all that sort of thing. But in the end, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with putting a dog down. Whereas with a human, I don't think it helps anything to say, oh, but we'll make it comfortable. Oh, but we'll make it painless. And I'm like, I'm like, nope, it's like, can't erase the fundamental wrongness of putting down a human being which is mm-hmm. it's like the dividing line there and that's coming to you from where from still like a divine god picture that a human was the special animal i i think ultimately ontologically that's what grounds it although again i think i think a lot of people i think many people intuit it um even if they're like well i don't believe in god but i think you shouldn't do this and of course i'm always fascinated to ask okay okay well why and i kind of want to press them and i mean from my point of view, that's like, uh, you know, I, I can kind of set them up and sort of nudge them towards a, a Christian framework. Um, but I find a lot of people, a lot of people don't work their way from the bottom up rather right. than the top down, I would yeah. say. I think that's a really good way to put it. I know we should, have, we should have to start steering this towards the end, but I think this is, that's it because uh, people stay on the top. And I was using the downstream upstream kind of thing, yelling about for me, at least, how it hits my ears when I hear killing babies versus this versus that at the end of things, that's so the top rather than you put it like the down. It's not the foundation. We disagree about some really important fundamental sort of like existential questions of life. And then a lot of this falls out of it, which is interesting. But I wanted to, in this conversation, get to those bottom places because I hope you heard a lot of overlap of at least our concerns, certainly a different grounding answer of where you and I ground, which is why we end up in really different places. But it's important to get to these deep existential grounding questions for me, because I I too find that I'm always asking why, right? As a secular person, I'm asking why. And my answer is just different. Maybe back to sort of your Peterson hierarchy analogy. I don't I know he's said something like God is your highest value or something like that. Whatever you decide is your highest value. Right. I think hierarchies and, and moral sort of priorities and checklists are whatever happens in, in our minds are unavoidable. And I think it's, that's the interesting hard work. That's the precipice that Doug, Douglas walked away from. Maybe I just jumped over it being like, dude, this is it. We're humans. We're the animal that can actually jump over this. N- not in, and in that way, I am a bit of a human exceptionalist as well, though I find uh, no justification for sort of the 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 decision to to partake in in animal eating. Um, so, and that's a fairly recent thing for me. Is my wife's a vegan and she got me all the way there, and I've been like, wow, this this is great and much easier than I thought. So that's a little pitch for it. But of course, I'm asking myself why, and I'm always asking myself why. And those are questions of consciousness, and those are questions of suffering, but more about my suffering and my consequences and my will and the version of free will I have to not partake in the desire which 
maybe God implanted me with or not, or evolution, whatever you can say, to, to like the taste of meat. But I can choose the free won't to not partake in that for all kinds of meta-ethical reasons that um, I find I find salient. So, no, I, I could give you sort of my pitch of, of uh, I like the way you phrased it, sort of like atheism doesn't just let you shrug and click your heels and go about your day. I totally reject that. In my last conversation with, with Benjamin Story, we sort of, it was Pascal kind of calling bullshit on Montaigne for that position of like, no, dude, like, you're not really forgetting that death is coming for you. You're not really forgetting about these big questions where, you know, you can't just click your heels and walk away. And I think Pascal is, is really right about that and was really right about that. But those, those, the, the, the is ought uh, gap that Hume said, I think is fundamentally unmovable. You can't get an ought from an is, but we have to, we have to invent something. And you would reject this framing, I'm sure, but I don't, I don't um, disparage religious-minded people for putting a big, firm, golden bridge on that is-ought thing called God and walking over it beautifully. But I contend that they built a really a, a God bridge. My bridge that I try to build, and, and I can go into it here, is you know sort of a Carl Sagan-esque picture of human capacity. Uh, I'll use the quote here for, for first-time listeners. If not, they're probably bored of me repeating it. But his beautiful phrase, we are a way for the universe to know itself, is amazing and sounds like this beautiful prayer and poetry almost. But you actually look at it, and it's a pure is statement. We are a way for the universe to know itself. There's nothing ought in there. We don't have to. You could shrug and be like, yeah, just kill yourself. There's nothing in there. But it seems to me, and this is my bridge, this is my cheat, it implies building an ought that we ought to, because what's the other game in town? It's just giving up and suicide. So we are a way for the universe to know itself, knowing ourselves, knowing morality, seeking God. I am like fully on board with this entire project, but I, um, I, 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 I like that. And I think it's inescapable to, to just claim, no, there was no gap, and my God bridge was never a bridge. There was never a gap. I can derive the oaths from the universe itself, and God implanted them, and I'm just discovering them and enacting them. I reject that picture of a grounding, but I, but it's but but I respect it, you know. And, and I'm and I'm here. If if you, I think, are probably in that camp, and I don't mean to like disparage you for <coughs> defending it, and I and I hope you understand that. Well, yeah, for sure. And um, if I can nuance that a little yeah. bit, so. So, I mean, like I said, there, there are divisions within the Christian camp um, on how precisely to frame this as well. So I'm not a divine command theorist, um, mm. for example. And that's like you'll hear maybe William Lane Craig or some of these other certain apologists or, or whatever will, will sort of frame things in that way. And I, I don't always really particularly like or agree with, with how that's framed. Uh, that that's like a whole separate thing unto itself um and, and but maybe just, just quickly what, what is that really it's just sort of like divine commandments that are handed down that i'm not that familiar with his oh so, so so like like the, the very very quick and dirty version mm. would, would be that um just to say that that god could wake up tomorrow morning and declare like like he could like reverse polarity on everything basically mm. <laughs> um and because god said it that would make it how would we know anyway i don't know it, Twitter, well, right. probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and which, which I, I, I don't um, subscribe to that. Um, yeah. But so, if I, if I can, okay. So, so beginning to to steer this to a close, to what you were saying, you were quoting Carl Sagan. Mm. Um, 
and uh, you know, Sagan, I, I love reading guys in that vein. I don't know if you're familiar with a uh, Lauren Isley. No, no. Does the star thrower? Oh my gosh, you have to check out Warren Isley, The Star Warren Thrower, and, and other essays. Um, amazing, like a, a secular writer, but this incredible naturalist, but mm -hmm. but also, you know, lyrical, poetic writer, and a, a humanist, you know, a humanist of uh, the sort of old-fashioned kind, you know, this the Star Trek Gene Roddenberry humanist, right? Um, so that's what you're sort of um, harking back to, I guess, yeah. in some sense. And I, I feel I have a real uh, a soft spot for that. It's because I want to sort of come along and say, but I too am a humanist. Mm -hmm. I, but I would like to steal humanism back, if I may. That, that's, that's sort of how I, how I approach these things. And give it to God. <laughs> I'm just like wondering. It's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think it always was God's in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I think Christian humanism is the true humanism. This is what I, what I would contend. Yeah, I think I think that is it a Christian precept that we can't know the mind of God. Man can't know the mind of God. Is it? I don't know if that's a purely well, Christian thing or no, not. No, well, I mean, yeah, well, okay, maybe some classical theists. I don't know, like maybe I'm straw manning my classical theist friends, but um, I think I think we can. Hmm. We can certainly know the mind of God in the sense of um, certainly understanding elements of, of God's will, understanding elements of His character. Um, and of course, ultimately revealed through the incarnation, I, I would say. So, you know, the, the people who knew Jesus in that sense were encountering God. Um, so, no, I don't think it's it's impossible to know the mind of God. Now, it may be impossible fully to grasp the, the, the totality of God, um, fully to grasp what the Trinity is exactly, you know, mm. these kinds of things. I, I think there are certain things that are, are inscrutable. Maybe they won't always be, I don't know. But... Um, yeah, no, I, I think we can know the mind of God, at least to some extent. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like that precept that we can't, <laughs> because that's the eternal, <laughs> the, the eternal striving for me. So I was, I was hoping to find some, some common ground there. Well, I'm not, I'm not um, saying yeah. that we, I'm not saying we have God all figured out by any means, but I, I, I think we, I think he, he's left us clues. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Well, I, I should wrap it up. Um, this is, uh, I just thank you so much for letting me push back and engaging with me on this kind of thing. I hope, I know we went into some deep places, but I, I genuinely think it's more helpful having these kinds of engagements than fighting about it's killing it. Because again, it sounds crazy, but killing a baby doesn't land in my in my heart the way that you probably think it does. And me saying what I say at the outset of like, don't you care about the woman doesn't land in your heart in the exact same way. And that's mostly what the abortion kind of like yelling you end up hearing about on the street, like my body, my choice versus baby killer. Um, and it's something much deeper. It's something much more profound about, about human nature. And I think people we've quoted, Jordan, of course, is, is someone, but, but Nietzsche and older philosophers have been asking these hard questions for a really long time. Um, and we're, we're definitely coming apart at the seams on not these surface issues. That's what it's going to look like, right? Like World War I started when Franz Ferdinand got, you know, assassinated, but that's not what World War I really was about. Um, it could, you know, abortion could be the spark, who knows, in the next few months, honestly, that tears the country apart. But it's not going to ever really be about that at the end. We do have some deep, fundamental, existential fissures to talk about and contend with. Um, 
And, and, and all I was trying to do again, I just like, thank you so much. I've never talked this much on my podcast. So like, you've been a wonderful ear as well. Um, and you're an incredible writer and I'm going to push everyone to read your stuff. Even if you disagree with everything that she said, read it because it's really good. And you should be engaging with the best version of the thing you disagree with. And I think you're really good at that. And your stuff is genuinely challenging for me. Who's like, oh, I disagree with that, but I have to think about why. And that's why you're, you're an excellent writer. Um, so just thank you so much for that. And I think this conversation needs to continue and go on. I hope people who listen to it could hear enough overlap that I'm going to contend that you and I are ultimately concerned about the same thing. We certainly have different psychologies and different temperaments about um, human nature or God's nature or what we're all doing on this earth or what free will might be or what it might not be or what Douglas Murray and I clearly have different things. He's, he'll hold back away from the cliff and I'll jump over it. Okay, some of these might be psychological, but ultimately we all see the cliff. And to, to put this in the, the surface level, Trump, January 6th, red states are all dummies. They're not. And it looks dumb at the end sometimes to people and it looks loud. It looks like a protest. Um, I think to put it, to, to go way out of the abortion debate, we as a species, because of our godlike powers. You just have to admit that you brought Nietzsche here. He'd be like, holy shit, like what we can do with technology looks like a god, right? Aristotle would be shocked by what we can do from our pockets or this podcast even over this strange device. Um, we have a lot of responsibility that goes along with that. And we can make a huge, huge mess of things. And there is a strong feeling, whether this is retreating to faith, as Douglas might say, there is a feeling that we are driving very quickly towards a world and a vision we might not understand. And we could put that in religious context if we want. And some will say we're getting further from God. There's a lot of ways that that sentence can come out and strike us. But what technology in particular in Silicon Valley can do, we talked a little about IVF and all these big genetic questions. They're here, they're on our lap. And we need now really to have these kind of deep conversations and secularists like myself need to listen much, much more closely to religious people because uh, you, you finish one of your essays of something like, you know, there are states painted red, bless them. And it was like a lovely little ending. And a lot of people need to hear it in the blue states in particular. I don't know my listener, listener base, but I bet it's a lot of blue and a lot of blue states. Um, they, they need to understand and listen to it and and get away from the noise a little bit. Get away from the initial answers of of killing babies and and stop engaging with that initial fight, which I or at least understand why that's such a dagger or or you feel like it's such a dagger and we have to get below it and we have to start talking to each other again about this stuff um, and figure it out. That's all I can say. That's like my my final my final plea to everyone and a huge just thank you. But I'll let you have the floor for the end. Yeah, well, you're welcome. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm about to blow like all the capital I, I've gained in this conversation. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I actually fairly comfortable with with language of, of killing babies, because I just think it's a, a statement of fact about what, what's actually happening. Um, but so, you know, you're, you're sort of looking ahead to the coming months and what's going to happen with the courts and all, all this mess. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I've always been a, a fairly pessimistic sort personality wise. I think at the end, it nothing is, is actually going to come of it. Mm. I think Roe v. Wade is just going to stand like it always has. I don't really have much confidence in the makeup of SCOTUS, even now as it currently is. I think it basically comes down to what, um, you know, Justice Roberts had for breakfast that morning. Yeah. Um, it's So I, you know, honestly, 
and this is delicate with a lot of my pro-life friends who, who tend to get themselves very excited about this sort of thing. But I, I find that you save a lot of emotional energy by just being consistently pessimistic. Um, <laughs> and so, but it's for that very reason that I think it's important to foster ground level discussion, yeah. because I think that's where the discussion is really going to happen. I don't think this is really going to resolve itself at the high level, at the level of no. the courts. But, um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm going to let you finish it, but I tend to agree with you. People overreact. Like I said, if you, if you just see the media headline of whatever SCOTUS decides to do, uh, November 1st, they're hearing the oral arguments for the Texas ban law, but I think it's going to be more about the technicality of their enforcement measure. Um, and then December 1st is is the Mississippi law. Whenever you, whenever you see the media report on it, please do me a favor and just go to SCOTUS's website. They're terrible at this. They need to be more forward and read the opinion because it's probably going to be less extreme than the way the media portrays it on either side that you were, you know, rooting for. Um, but but you're probably right. If I had to make a prediction, I think it will, this court's been pretty clear about being very, very state rights friendly, and it'll just continue to erode in a bit more that way. Um, but like I said, pro- people probably don't even know, like Mississippi, it's, it's already basically illegal to get an abortion after 15 weeks. Um, if they get that law in the books and they allow it, if they don't overturn Roe v. Wade, more states will follow suit. And that, that is where, you know, this, this country, this country may fissure along this line pretty, pretty, um, pretty deeply. But the fact that the media hasn't been telling you, you know, how Mississippi already has a law in the books that you can't get an abortion after 20 weeks. And most people probably like, don't even know that. Um, but no, th- th- this is a real fight. Oh, I'm, I'm glad real... to hear it. I didn't know that. So. <laughs> they do. Yeah. And, and only, like I said, 22 were only 22 were performed after, um, in 2018, that was the last data that was published, um, after, uh, the 15 week mark, which were likely medical cases. I don't, I don't know the details of them. Um, but yeah, we didn't even get into the data of who gets abortions and whatnot and where it's happening. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, the, there's a lot there, there's a lot of noise and I don't think you ruin the capital by, by saying the killing babies thing is there but as long as you realize that I'm like yeah I actually don't reject that language but I just we kill babies all the time or we kill people all the time and I could come up with a million reasons why the context matters and what we actually disagree on is the context that's all I've been trying to do is to like bring this and I and I have no delusions that have convinced you or anybody who was, who agreed with you that the context of a woman not wanting to continue her pregnancy is, is enough to, to, to overcome sure. it, even in my conception, right? Yeah, well, and, and you were saying earlier, well, so when you say killing babies, that doesn't land with me. Yeah. When I say, don't you care about the woman, that doesn't right. land with you. I did have one thing to say to, to that specifically, yeah. which is yeah. I mean, the reason why the rhetoric of don't you care about the woman um, it doesn't have its intended effect on me is because I'm I'm very secure in saying that I already do care very much for the woman. And so my argument would be that it is out precisely out of care for yeah. the woman as well as for the child that I, I take the position that I do. Yeah. So it's it's not um, you know it's it's definitely not out of uh, uh, lack of of care in that yeah. in that situation. Yeah, that's well said. So none of it's landing is what I'm saying at, at, at the surface level. But there are definite disagreements. This is not to say we agree uh, on the on what we think the law should be or even where we draw the moral line. So I'm not trying to be kumbaya about it. There's a real there's a real difference between us, which is great. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. I'm just trying to put like our finger on it somewhere. And it's deep. It's it's deep. It's yeah, God, it's, I, I appreciate yeah. that as well, because yeah. I do I do tend to get a little bit tired of the well, can't we all like come together and find some da da da? And I want to say, well, I mean, 
to some extent, maybe, but we're always going to disagree. I mean, you can't just yeah. pretend that that's not there, that that's not a, a serious fundamental thing. So I appreciate that as well. Yeah. And this is a big one. I mean, abortion is a big one. It, it has it, it wasn't always this politically salient. The history of it is is um, annoying to me in that way, because I think it's so unhelpful to make it so partisan um, for these exact reasons. But it is a big one. It's a, obviously a, it's a important the stakes are very high when you're talking about abortion. So of course we're going to end up clashing heads over it. But I think that's the exciting work of, of a human built society with or without God in the picture. Um, I just don't think we can escape the problems and, and God is, a, is, is less helpful in the discussion for me. Um, and I'm sure uh, you can't remove the God question in your conception of it. And that's fine. We're, we're going to have to just keep tangling it out. Um, but this was, this was awesome. I, I loved it again. Like, just thank you so much. Your Substack. you still go by Esther O'Reilly dot Substack.com. Yeah, so, yeah. Give your pitch. Cause again, everyone should read it. You're really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Even though I disagree um, so, with like all of it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not. I mean, I have a few things that hopefully you, you, you could agree with, but, um, yeah, so yeah, I, I began the Substack when I was still using, uh, the Esther O'Reilly pen name. And so that was the domain that I claimed. Um, and, it sort of had, I have all my bylines are under Esther. And so I'll, I'll probably just keep that. I mean, I, I already used up a, a free domain change, so I'm pretty much stuck with it. But <laughs> so it's, it's estheroreilly.substat.com. And the name of the Substack is further up, which is kind of a hat tip to C.S. Lewis. Um, so you can check me out there. I also tweet um, much more frequently than I should. And my username is um, Esther of Riley, which kind of Esther O'Reilly was taken already. And so I decided to do something that's not a kind of old timey. Um, so that's that's mostly where you find me. I also have a blog called Young Fogey um, on the Pathios Network, which I occasionally update, but I do that less frequently now. And that's a little bit more religion news focused. And so I'm, I, I think I'm just waiting for the day when they shut me down. Um, but I'll, I'll have some things on there as well. I'm just trying to figure out now as, as I grow, as my platform grows, and trying to figure out uh, how to divide my time as a writer, yeah. which is a fun problem to have. That's great. Well, it's wonderful. I hope we can do it again. Um, I, like, you know, I love getting into this stuff and, and trying deeply to understand someone who I really don't uh, agree with, because I, I'm sure there's value there. And there absolutely is value to your position. I hope the feeling is somewhat mutual um, and, uh, you know, away from hell, <laughs> Wherever, whatever it looks like. My little isolated room. I actually like that conception. I haven't I hadn't heard that view of it before. Um, yeah, this was this was awesome. So, I'll, well, thanks I'll so much for here. inviting me, Jay. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Yeah, you're welcome. So, as I said in the open, I know this is a bit unfair and sort of home field advantage to have the last word, but I wanted to offer some final thoughts after listening back to the conversation. In my essay that we referenced throughout, in which I lay out my case for a better conversation on abortion. I suggest that for most pro-lifers, the insistence that the central moral question when it comes to abortion revolves around the personhood of the fetus, and therefore the pronouncement that abortion is the taking of an innocent life, and therefore a moral wrong, and therefore it ought to be outlawed, is not actually the honest grounds of a debate on abortion. Because different attitudes towards instances like rape and incest as opposed to simply regretful sex or just forgetting the condoms or any other number of different circumstances that led to the pregnancy that lead to making exceptions for abortion bans plainly reveals that we're almost always really talking about 
the behavior of the woman. And what we're really doing when we fight about abortion is having a deeper conversation about the philosophy of actions and their consequences and levels of responsibility. I stand by that assertion. That is what most arguments about abortion are actually about. But Bethel is not most pro-lifers. She actually does fall into the minority who make no exceptions. In fact, as you heard, she extends this to IVF and a laboratory where a woman's behavior is not even a variable to ponder. The latest data I found from Pew Research pegs that stands at about 13% of the population. The same poll found about 25% of Americans uh, holding something like my stance of legal in all cases, which leaves, of course, most people somewhere in the, the mushy middle answering that it should be legal or illegal in most cases. As I hope you heard me outline, legal lines are incredibly tricky and somewhat arbitrary and will likely be drawing this particular one differently for a while. But anyway, I hope this conversation offered something to the discourse on abortion. I found it very valuable to be a part of. I was happy to have Bethel display what I suspect is the only consistent and honest logical set of conclusions to make if one does insist that there is a kind of miracle at the moment of conception that declares itself to have a sacred moral force field and infinite moral weight. Bethel, to her credit, stuck to her deep faith and her consistent argumentation throughout, simply stated, partaking in an action which knowingly and actively takes an innocent human life is a non-starter and an affront to God's will, and no context, no matter how extreme, can erase that truth. This can sound appealing, but when it's extended to its consistent application as Bethel laid out, I hope at least some of the thought experiments made you squirm at least a little bit. And when the view is coupled with a God who designed a world of human exceptionalism and non-deterministic free will, you get a rather dark picture, which includes human enforcement of capital punishment, permissible animal killing for food, which of course includes torture of animals, and a lonely eternal hell for me. <laughs> Though, of course, you also get no abortion. To me, it's all even much worse than that. To my ear, refusing to intervene on the terrorist who is driving into the crowd because our human intervention would take the life of his innocent daughter in the back seat because we can't have that blood on our hands is simply shifting that blood onto God's hands who set the conditions of this universe in the first place. To my mind, that is not just immoral, but a sign of philosophical immaturity where we cowardly abdicate from our ability to reason, our capacity to ponder existential questions, our struggle to discover or invent and define moral positions. Simply put, our human exceptionalism. Now, there is an escape from my harsh criticism there, which is calling this a fallen world and insisting that determinism is not the trap that it appears to be <laughs> and that there is a heaven awaiting where all of this is sorted out and the souls at the wedding party are taken care of anyway, depending, of course, on how they lived their lives. I have yet to hear a rational description where the kind of ultimate free will would exist 
that would justify the kind of cosmic divine punishment and reward systems that something like this picture of Christianity relies on. And I don't mean this to be disparaging, but Bethel's effort was no exception to that failure. Swapping out the concept of character for the word soul, as she did, does nothing to change the problematic picture for the religious hardliner. And I think that genuinely bothers a consistent philosophical thinker. That is why one often sees signs on churches that read, reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. And why Pascal insisted that rational arguments for or against the existence of a God are worthless. And perhaps they are. (laughs) So I know that all sounded pretty harsh there, but I stick by all the words I just said. But I also want to add that where I think this conversation and ones like it can really find that elusive overlap that I was looking for was also touched on on this episode frequently. It's that thing that Bethel mentioned that when atheism begins, all the work lies before you. I really love that. It's my admission and acknowledgement that I am aware that even if God is an incoherent, irrational hypothesis, it could be a necessary one. That, of course, is a huge, huge question, but I have a deep philosophical optimism that it's not true, that the human ability to generate knowledge through our creativity is the secular metaphor for something like our eternal salvation. That if God does exist, we can impress him by not shying away from daring to see just how beautiful and sacred we can make existence. And that will require that we take the leap into the chasm that Douglas Murray describes. The canyon from a description of the way the universe is to the way the universe ought to be is wide, but we must make the jump. For the only other alternative is to wander back to a fantasy garden of Eden or heaven where sacred values never clash and we have all the answers forever how dreadfully inhumane. So I appreciate Bethel's consistency, and I think we're making a mistake, both of us, if we dismiss each other and refuse to engage. Do I know the right answer on abortion? Well, I don't, I don't know. I also strive for a consistent ethic and justifiable moral positions, and I prefer to make the option widely available and legal And I'm happy to have people like Bethel make their argument to the world and hope, for her sake, (laughs) that all those clinics won't have a single patient walk through their door. But somehow, I doubt that's how it would play out.